Thank you for your participation and your interest and attention. Thank the young people for helping me out. Uh, they already know so much. It's not like I'm teaching them a lot, maybe some things, but very thankful they, they know as much as they do about <clears throat> these Old Testament things. So let's turn back to Exodus chapter 25. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, Exodus chapter 25. And we'll look down at verse 31. Thou shalt make a candlestick or a lampstand of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. A shaft, as branches, as bowls, as knops, as flowers shall be of the same. Six branches shall come out of the sides of it. Three branches of the candlestick out of the one side. Three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch with a knop and a flower. So the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds with their knops and flowers. And uh, verse 37, thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof. They shall light the lamps thereof that they may give light over against it and the tongs and the snuff dishes and so on so on verse 40 thou shalt make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount do it the way god told you and make it like god said so remember now that the priest um and i don't have another priest if i did and just had an average levite not the high priest that we have here in his garments of glory and beauty but they would have just worn the white linen that you see here. Uh, well, let me roll him out here, then you can see him a little better. Just helped him get around on the desert sand when he had this little roller thing here, you know. So, so he would have had just the white robe without the garments of glory and beauty, the average priest. And the regular priests, the regular Levites, in their different orders, not only could come into this first part, which was called the holy place, um, or the sanctuary, they had to come in here because there were certain functions that they had to do. So inside of this first room, which, remember, was 30 foot long and 15 feet high, the holy place, there were the three pieces of furniture that that are in that particular room or the holy place. And I know you remember what they were. You remember what they were, these three pieces in here? I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a little help. What do you think this first one was called right here? Yeah, candlestick or the lampstand, yes. And then we got another one right here. Yes. Yes, altar of incense. And then this one here, the table of showbread. Yes, sometimes called the bread of presents, which is not presents like Christmas presents, but presents like a person's being there, you know, presents, the bread of presents. So three uh, things in here. Now, remember that this was completely covered over like you see in that big picture over there. So there was no natural light in here. Out in the courtyard, there was natural light. Light of the sun by day and so on and so on. But in here, no natural light. The only light that was in here was the light of the lampstand. And it was olive oil for the lamps. And the lampstand 
shined on everything in here. Now, you've you got to remember that except for the veil there, all of these walls were gold like you see here. These side walls were all gold. But with these heavy curtains that would have been on here, and with the veil and the, the door here, it would have been dark in here except for the light. And so when the priest came in, the light would reflect over on these golden walls, and it would reveal everything that was in here. It would show the altar of incense. It would show the table of showbread. It would show the veil and uh, that and the ceiling, which would have had the cherubims in it and so on. That was the only source of light inside of the holy place of the tabernacle. Now, everything in here is very uh, stylized. It is very uh, uh, symbolically portraying something to us. So when you begin to think about the lampstand, or the candlestick as you may call it, it wasn't just a normal candlestick, was it? Because very specifically, it was they were said to make it with leaves and bowls that looked like almonds, and it had branches, and it had a main trunk. If you see something with a trunk and branches and leaves and fruit, what do we call that? Yes, Sam. What's that, Sam? A tree. Yes, tree. So it was made to look like a tree. And the tree had on it leaves and buds and the fruit, the different stages of life. Hard question. Now, you had to have been here last night, I think, uh, the young people that were up here, probably to get the answer to this, because this is a hard question. Sam may know it. Um, others may know it. But I showed you something last night that had leaves and buds. Yes, Aaron's budding staff, which is where? Where is it? In the Ark of the Covenant. And so it had leaves and almonds and buds, um, all the various stages of life. Flowers, you see, all the various stages of life. And so when we think of this tree, it wasn't like any other tree because it was a tree that symbolized life. It was a tree of life, but it wasn't just a tree of life because it was a tree also of light, see, a tree of life and a tree of light, light and life, which is very interesting. God was really giving us a, a, a number of good pictures there. Let's turn back, if you want to follow along, to the Old Testament, and let's read in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. There's a prophecy that's here at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. That's a prophecy of the Messiah, which was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and so on. And so we see then the description of the Spirit of God in his different 
manifestations, if you will, that would rest upon him, sometimes called the sevenfold spirit of God. Not going to go into this in detail, but if I recall, when you come to the book of Revelation, there were seven lamps before his throne. These were the seven spirits and so on, which I think ties in with Isaiah chapter 11 and the concept of lamps and well. That's just for your your further study. Let's turn to a couple of other scriptures. Let's turn to Psalm 20. Well, while we're here, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 60 because we're in the same book. We want it to go back back and forth as much. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19. Hmm. Sixty nineteen, sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither by brightness shall the moon give her light. I don't know why I put that there. <laughs> Curious thing, uh, <laughs> but I do know why I put sixty one there. Um, in here was prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very words he spoke when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, went to the synagogue, opened the scroll, and read, "The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent." me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and so on. Now, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but do you know, I'm going to give you a really hard, I'm going to be so impressed if any of the young people get the answer to this one. You know, we had a lesson in the Hebrew language last night, and all the young people that were here learned at least one Hebrew word and what it meant in English. Anybody remember what the Hebrew word we learned was? Uh, you. Yes. Manna. And how, how does, what's the English translation for that? What is it? Yes, see, they learned Hebrew. We even have language school here sometimes. So, um, But anyway, um, can you tell me what the Hebrew word for Christ is? And we're using English transliterations, yes. Uh, that is a, a one of the names, but no, the actual... So Christ is a, like from a Greek word, but there's a Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament. Um, it's sometimes we're waiting on the coming of the Messiah, yes. And that basically means the anointed one the anointed one. And so when the Lord Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, you see, he's claiming to be the anointed one. There were three anointings basically in the Old Testament. If you were a prophet, you were anointed. If you were a king, you were anointed. And of course, the priest had to be anointed with oil as well. So the anointing, the spirit of God. Why am I going through all this? Because we see the connection between the oil that was used to give light in this tree of life and that oil in the anointing and the connection between the Messiah and the connection between the Spirit of God. That's the one connection we want to think about. Now, thinking a little bit further, uh, it's Christ in the power of the Spirit who gives light and who, and, 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 and the Spirit of God, let's see, How can I say this? Well, if we could just make that little bit, if you want to call it a leap, 
to think that in some ways this represents the truth of the Spirit of God because the oil that was used was that olive oil that was the anointing oil. And that's why I read those verses about anointing. Then the Spirit of God, it would be that light that would light up all these things that are in here and all these things in one way or another speak about Christ. Now I'm going to fast forward in our thinking a little bit and take us into the New Testament to the book of Revelation. When John first begins to see the visions he sees in the book of Revelation, he sees the risen Christ, and Christ is standing in the middle of what? Anybody remember? You remember? Uh, Not exactly. The cross is always a good answer. It's like (laughs) Jesus. You can't go wrong with that one. Uh, No, he's standing. Yes, yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see you. Yes, you, you go ahead. Seven lampstands, yes. And so the lampstands, then I'm going to ask you this one. Do you know what the lampstands represented in the book of Revelation? The seven churches, yes. Seven that were picked out. There were more, but those seven representative. So they're, they're represented as lampstands, and one of the obvious functions of lampstands is to give light. And Christ is there in the middle, and they are shining their light on him. But not just shining the light to show him that... They are, in a sense, well, they are showing forth the glory of the Lord Jesus because John goes on to describe the glory of the risen Christ. Well, that helps us a lot because one of the chief purposes, primary purpose of the church, if you ask a lot of people, what's the purpose of the church? They'll, They'll often tell you a lot of things that are probably true in a sense, but the primary purpose of the church, it's not to glorify man. It's to glorify Christ. It's not to attract attention to humans. It's to draw attention to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And those churches are seen in that primary function, illuminating Christ who's in the midst of them. Now, there were seven lampstands there. Israel only had one lampstand representing uh, in, in their nation, but it served the same purpose. You couldn't see anything in here without the light provided by the lampstand. So it's interesting. Now, we don't know the exact size. I think that the one we have here is probably a little little small for smaller than what it would have been because when you think about it, um, I believe it was about 75 pounds of gold that was used to make this. So it probably was bigger than that if you did the the weight and and everything that represented. Um, 75 pounds of gold. Now, light and life. Now, I said earlier, I wouldn't expect you to remember it, but that when I go out of the area of what Scripture says, I like to say I'm now going to get into an area that Scripture doesn't say. It's not anything that's contrary to Scripture. Lord willing, I wouldn't do that. But it's just something that the Bible doesn't specifically say. So please don't ever go away and say, well, Mr. Larry said the Bible says that on this particular thing because it doesn't say that. But everything is suggestive when we begin to think about it. When you start going over the construction of this lampstand, this tree of life and tree of light, and you begin to count the features of the lampstand, 
you realize that, and here you got to help me because, again, this is my worst, math is my worst suit. But when you count how many things are on these, nine features to each branch times three. Now, I don't know if you can do this if you only know common core, but anyway, can anybody, young people, tell me three times nine? Yes. It is 27, yes. And then when you count uh, the rest of these things, um, there's another 27 here, and there's 12 here. 12 and 27. This is addition. <laughs> Ought plus ought is ought, you know. Uh, 12 and 27 is 39, right? So you got 39 and you got 27. Now comes the really hard part. When you add uh, 39 and 27, what is the total of 39 and 27? 66. Can you tell me anything that you can think of that has 66 in 39 and 27 that produces light and life? Yes, sir. The Bible, yes. Interesting, isn't it? Now, again, you can't go away from here and say, Larry said the Bible says that the lampstand, uh, you know, is 66 books of the Bible, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number two. No, but, you know, make what you will of it. Just call it a lovely thought. Brush it aside. It's just interesting, isn't it, that in the construction of it, those are not made up numbers, that that is the actual number of the components. We certainly can say, can't we, that our Bible is something that produces both light and life. Light and life. Thinking of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1, it'll say of him, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Those are interesting words. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar nor a Hebrew scholar, but words do interest me. And so there's a word there for light that I think is the word uh, P-H-O-S, from where we get our word photon and that type thing from. Um, There's a word there for life that is zoe. It's where we get our word zoology from. It speaks of every form of life, all kinds of life, every aspect of life. Yes, Sam? Is that a question, Sam? Are you just stretching? Oh, okay. Uh, Good. Stretch the other one, too. Don't just give it the one, you know. In the Lord Jesus Christ, every form of life that ever exists came from him. And light. God is light. And the Lord Jesus is both light and life. And all life flows forth from him. And so the lampstand, very suggestive, reminds us of a lot of these things. Reminds us, too, of the Spirit of God showing us the things of Christ. And then we have the incense altar. Now, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 1. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Won't go over the whole story, but you remember that this has to do with the birth of John the Baptist, and it has to do with a priest whose name was Zacharias. And it says in verse 9 of Luke 1, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And when he was there burning incense, everybody was outside praying. And you remember the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and so on at the right hand of the altar of incense. I'm going to show you in a moment that this altar of incense, with its incense that rose up, which was a special formula that was only allowed to be used for God. You couldn't go in and say, man, I love the smell of that. I'm going to make me some of that stuff or take me some of that stuff. There were things in here that were only for God. Now, you might enjoy the fragrance of it, you see. But that special way and the the particular fragrances and spices that were used to make this incense, God said, that is for me and me alone. And so as the priest was here and the incense was rising and the priest stood here at this altar, he addressed the God who was sitting directly behind him on the throne on the Ark of the Covenant. And he communed with God. He prayed. He spoke with God. And so that rising incense reminded him that prayer was going up to God and that God is the living God who hears prayer and answers prayer. It doesn't mean that God is a magic genie. It doesn't mean that God's like the Buddha in the Chinese restaurant and you go by and rub his belly and make a wish and you're going to get something answered, you see. That's not the way God is. He's not a machine that you put a quarter in and pull a slot and hope something comes out. But he is the living God. And the living God hears prayer and answers prayer. It's interesting in this very story because when the angel appears to Zacharias, he says, your prayer is heard. Now, we don't know when the last time that he prayed because by the time this event happens, well, what prayer had been heard? What did they want more than anything? They wanted to have a child. Now they're too old, humanly speaking. I mean, he's old, she's old. Neither one of them can have a child. So they probably hadn't been praying. You know, let me just say it this way in, in, in kind of modern thinking. You know, there ain't no point in me right now praying for me and Wanda to have a child, okay? <laughs> that, that, that train has left the station, all right? We're done with childbearing days, you see. So I'm not going to be praying anymore like I used to when we were newly married. Lord, you know, blessed with a child and all that kind of a thing, you see. So I don't know how long it had been since Zacharias or Elizabeth had prayed to have a child. But when the angel appears, the angel says, your prayer is heard. God heard that prayer. It seemed like a long time coming, didn't it? And Zacharias couldn't believe it, that he was going to actually have a child. Well, it was a terrible thing for a priest not to believe that God could bring life out of death. That was the very basis of the gospel we believe. It's the very thing Abraham believed. Abraham looked at his body, now as good as dead, looked at Sarah, who was no spring chicken, and he said, against hope, he believed in hope that God could make life come out of death. And Paul says in Romans 4, that's the very heart of our gospel. And so for a priest, how's he going to bless the people? He's got nothing to say, and God shut his mouth. Until he did believe. 
But anyway, he was standing at the altar. Imagine this, a priest standing at the place that spoke of the fact that he's the living God who hears prayer. An angel appears right here and tells him his prayer has been answered and he doesn't believe. A priest who didn't believe. Imagine that. And finally, ultimately, he did believe. But anyway, that spoke, of course, of prayer, the altar of incense. And then if you look back a little more specifically to Psalm 141, we read there, Psalm 141, Psalm 141, and verse 2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense. And when you read in Revelation chapter 8, you find there, as I said, many of these things prefigure things that we find uh, in heaven, or at least symbolically in heaven. In in Revelation in chapter 8, it says, The smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angels' hands, and it all had to do with this golden, uh, this altar and a golden censer and everything else. So it's a clear references in Scripture that one thing that this represented was prayer. Prayer going up to God and God hearing prayer. Now, one of the great things to me to think about, too, is that um, when you look at this tabernacle setup, there's so much to think about, and I just I get going off track sometimes because I can't think of everything. But we, we're going to think about this just for a moment because it will prepare us also for tomorrow. Now, in here, notice there's three pieces of furniture that have something that's the same on them. And what's the thing that they have on them? What does it look like? Yes, you're Jack, right? Jack, yes, it's gold. But look here on the top. What does that look like? Yeah, they're like spikes, or it's actually called a crown. So this has a crown, this has a crown, and this has a crown. Now, this has something different than these other ones do. What does it have on the top of it? What are these called? Yes, horns. What else has horns? Yes, horns here, see, different material. But there's a sense in which these things are linked. As a matter of fact, on the Day of Atonement, when the blood was sprinkled here uh, on the altar, they also took the blood and they would have sprinkled the blood on the horns of the golden incense altar. So there's a link between these things. I like to think of it like this, that this speaks of prayer, but what gives this... By the way, back up just a just a wee bit. These are horns, not like toot toot, you know, like I blow the shofar horns. These are animal horns. And animal horns in Scripture represent power. You find that in the book of Daniel. Power, see. And so the 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 altar of incense, in a sense, connected and linked with the sacrifice here, it got its power from what the sacrifice provided. There's a link that's there between those two. And the horns here are made to remind us of the horns here, in that sense. Now, 
When the high priest stood before the altar of incense and communed with God, who was just behind that veil, he went in in his garments of glory and beauty. And if you've gotten close to the high priest here, um, he's a rather tall fellow for an Israelite, but that's partly because he's on the stand. You notice that the Hebrew letters for the different names are, are here? Yes, Yes, everything here is very symbolic. What is a pomegranate? It is a fruit, yes. So there was a a pleasant sound. There was fruitful appearance. Again, yes, Jack. The rope trick. Yes. <laughs> You have to remember, Jack, I don't know if he was here for the rope trick the other night. But anyway, uh, that is a thought. But the other thing is, is as he walked, it made a certain music to it, didn't it? Thinking of the bell. So there was a pleasant sound. There was fruitfulness or life, you see, represented in the walk of the priest and so on. But up here, there were 12 names. Why 12 stones? Sam? Of Israel, yes. One stone, one name on each one. On the shoulders, six names on each side for the 12 tribes. So as the priest, you see, went in and stood here to pray to God, he not only was representing God to the people, he was representing the people to God. He wasn't just praying for himself. But I want you to think about this. This is called the holy place. And when that priest went in with those names, let me say it this way. The priest went in with those names. You ever read what some of those boys did that those names represented? But the priest went in and bore those names up before God. And then those names represented all the rest of all the people, you see. And there he was in the very holy place, bearing up the people of God before the Lord, symbolically, of course. And, of course, it was important, too, wasn't it, where he walked, because he walked in the light. You see, remember that. When you come to First John, it has troubled many people, and it's troubled my own mind sometimes, the conditional phrase that's found there, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And sometimes I think to myself, I can't walk like Jesus Christ walked. If that's what it means, I'm in big trouble. But it's not so much about how we walk as where we walk. If we walk in the light, in the light, you see, if we walk where we walk, just think about that. And so the altar of incense, again, representing prayer and the power that was gained from the blood sacrifice. And then finally, we have that which is called the bread of presence, Exodus chapter 25, table of showbread, Exodus 25 and verse 23, they were to make a table of acacia wood, the dimensions are given, it was to be overlaid with gold, 
And then we find in various other parts of the scripture where uh, the, the uh, different components came from. Now, I said that to me this is one of the most easily identifiable things. You got a table. You got a plate with food. You got cups with drink. When you see a table, like you're going to see soon, and it has food, and it has drink, what does it say? Let's eat, you see. And imagine now the priest were to come in here, according as the scripture said, and they were the, the ones who were allowed to eat the bread that was on this table. And in a sense, they did that once a week. But there's something else that you find here. I want to turn to Leviticus and uh, chapter 24. Very beautiful thing that we find in Leviticus 24. Verse 5. You will make take fine flour, bake 12 cakes. Now, You'll see different pictures. Sometimes in tabernacle, you'll see loaves that are set, you know, like this. I told you from the beginning that you're going to see different ways that it's represented. Sometimes you see them stacked like that, 12 loaves. Sometimes you see it this way. Again, notice the number 12, one for each tribe. And there's the bread. And it says that they were to put frankincense upon each row. It was an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath it was to be set in order before the Lord continually. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons. They shall eat it in the holy place and so on. It was to be there before the Lord continually. That's interesting. So on one day of the week, when they came in to change the bread, the priest could come in and they were allowed to eat this bread. They were allowed to eat this bread. But what happened the other six days of the week? Why did the bread just sit there for six days? Who enjoyed it then? The priest didn't eat it seven days a week. They only ate it one day a week. But for the rest of those six days, it was there before the Lord. It was for the Lord's enjoyment. And remember... Twelve loaves representing again all of the people of the nation of Israel. There for the Lord's enjoyment. And then on that one day, the priests came in and they partook of what God himself had been enjoying symbolically for those other six days. The fact to sit with him in the presence of God and have a meal. You know, God, uh, the Lord, um, he knows how to appeal to us, doesn't he? So oftentimes in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus used different parables. And the ones that, uh, that he used many times talked about eating. What will heaven be like? How do you explain heaven, what it will be like? Well, one way the Lord said, it's going to be like a banquet. Now, a banquet, if you don't know what a banquet is, a banquet isn't, isn't a uh, lunchable, okay? 
It's not a brown bag with a peanut butter sandwich. A banquet. You know, when you go to a banquet, I mean, we're probably talking pre-COVID here, you know, but when you go to a, 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 I've been to, like I've been to buffets, and then I've been to buffets. And I mean, I have been to some buffets that were like, whoa, wow, you know. And the great thing about a buffet, the worst thing about a buffet is you never have enough plate. And you often run out before you get halfway down the line, you know. But but one of the great things about a buffet is you go to a really nice buffet and there's stuff on there that you know you would never fix. Either it's too expensive or it's too hard to make or whatever. And you know you're like, yes, I want to try one of those and three of those. And, ooh, look at that. I'll have a couple of those, you know. There's this one place in in the Bahamas in, in, in Atlantis that certain friends of ours take us from time, time to time called Mosaic. And it's, uh, I'm glad they take us. I don't even want to know what it costs. But man, I'll tell you, I go in there. I know it's kind of brutal to do this at a quarter to 12. But, you know, but, um, and, and I immediately go to the place that has the lamb chops. Now, I know lamb is not everybody's, you know, company. These are the best lamb chops I have ever had in my life, you know. And I just camp there. I get the, <laughs> I get the lamb chops, and then I go for the big prawns, you know, the shrimp. Oh, you know. So anyway, I'm saying that to say when the Lord, <laughs> when the Lord wanted to appeal to our senses about a banquet, maybe he's suggesting to us, you know, that in this life, There's things, for whatever reason, you may have never been able to enjoy in life. Not everybody is able to enjoy the same things. And I'm not only talking about food now, but you're going to have things that will satisfy you there. That's how the Lord kind of made heaven to be, you know. People People could relate to that, you know, to be able to go to something like that. Well, um... One of the remarkable things is that it's not just what's going to be at the banquet. It's going to be who's going to be there. And so one of the most fascinating things to me, I, I'm not good at titling sermons, never have been, but there's a few that I've titled. And so there's this one message, and I, I confess I've preached it I don't know how many times. I've preached it a bunch. But a few years ago, I gave it a title. And it's, where was Jesus in June? So, you know, when I was a little boy, wasn't raised in a Christian home, went to Sunday school, they teach you basic things. Jesus died. Three days later, rose from the grave, went back to heaven. Okay? That's, that's true. But that isn't the whole story, is it? For 40 days, for almost six weeks, he came. He appeared. So when you do the math, because Easter's at a different time every year, it has to do with the, the equinox and uh, you know the whole deal of when the moon is full and all that. So it falls a different time every year. And there's been a couple of years when it fell very late towards the end of April, which would have meant if that was the time of Passover, if it happened to be then, that the Lord Jesus could have been appearing on earth as late as the first week or so of June to his disciples. And then 
Peter will say in Acts chapter 10, it'll say it in Acts chapter 1, different word used, same in Acts chapter 10, they did eat and drink with him. Now, I hate to recommend anything of a certain nature because it just, sooner or later something will go haywire. And like, well, He said it was good. But anyway, my wife and I have really enjoyed recently watching series one and series two of The Chosen. I don't know if any of you have seen The Chosen yet. There's actually an app for it now. You can watch it on an app. Season one, season two of The Chosen. And it's about Christ and the disciples. And I mean, it's just, I get goosebumps even now thinking about some of the scenes. I think, personal opinion, they've done a really good job. And oftentimes the way they present it, it's like, man, what would it have been like? I mean, what what was it like, you know, when they were there with him and they saw this paralyzed man come and his feet get straightened and blind man all of a sudden, you know, just overwhelming. But I think, what would it have been like now when Christ died, rose from the dead in a glorified body, and they sat, and they ate, and they drank with him? If they'd have had forks, I don't know how you ever get your fork to your mouth, sitting at a table with the risen Lord. <laughs> but he was proven the reality that this is a real body. And they ate and drank with him. The reality of his resurrection. Incredible. And one day, you and I who are believers, we're going to sit down at a meal with the glorified Son of God. I don't know what it'll be like, but I'll tell you, I don't want to, well, I'm not going to miss it. (laughs) I hope you're not going to miss it. So to eat there with God at that level, what, what must that have been? But it was God's way of expressing again, wasn't it? I want you to have fellowship with me. And I want to have fellowship with you. It was limited. Only the priest could do it. But there was something else that was here. And that was for six days. This was here. Strictly for the Lord's enjoyment. They were before him. You see. And that's an incredible thing. When we think about that too. That. As we talked about those names, still was a certain sense, the Lord's enjoyment of his people. I know myself because I've got all kind of baggage and all kind of problems, and I know better probably than anybody, I'm not what I ought to be most of the time, it seems like, and I have a lot of, you know, conflicting doubts in my own mind and heart and all that kind of a thing. But how important it is to remember that there's a sense in which the Lord takes pleasure in his child. I guess you could say, in a sense, the Lord likes me and loves me a whole lot more than I like me and love me sometimes, you know. And the Lord thinks a lot more of me than I do of me. A lot of times, and I'm very thankful for that. And it's not because of my performance. It's because of what Christ did. The Lord helped me to remember that. So I just close with this one verse that reminds me of this, and I always think about that Leviticus passage. When I, when I come to this passage, it's actually in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. 
or if dear brother Randy was here, Ephesians. <laughs> By the way, I talked to Sylvia yesterday, sends her greetings. I always like to tell her when I'm doing the tabernacle because it's very near and dear to her heart. And um, uh, anyway, you know, November 3rd will be a year since Randy was taken home to be with the Lord. Anyway, you, uh, you know that uh, Ephesians 1 says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Stop your reading there, I suggest. Put the words in love with the next verse. In love, having predestinated us under the adoption children, and so on. But stop the reading there and pause on it just for a moment. That we should be holy and without blame before him. Like those loaves were there, the bread of the presence, before him. And that's how God sees us. Um, we're eating, aren't we? Oh, no, we're not eating. Oh, man, after all that talk about food, we're not eating. Wow, <laughs> what a letdown. Anyway, I don't look like I've missed many meals. So anyway, <laughs> thank you again. Again, you're more than uh, welcome to come forward, to come up, take pictures. Please be careful around things, particularly the animals have a lot of fragile parts. There's some hot fire there. But uh, feel free to come as a family or kids or whoever look and I'll be around. You can ask some questions if they're really hard questions, and I'll let uh, Malcolm answer them. Our Father, we thank you for the great thoughts that you give us in this tabernacle. We are able to look back now in light of what has taken place with Christ on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the scripture, the spirit of God, and we can look back and glean so many rich lessons. But even those Israelites could have learned things. And uh, we thank you for the lessons you've taught us. May you impress them upon our hearts. Give us good thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as much as possible, Lord, it's not that we want to gloss over our faults or our failures or our sins or any of that, but help us to see us as you see us. We're thankful that because of what Christ has done, you take pleasure in that work, which is us, the very travail of his soul, the fruit of the travail of his soul. So we give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.